May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. When I was first asked to preach for this series, I was incredibly honored. When I read what the chapter would be, I thought about saying no, that I was too busy. I was too intimidated by the passage. It's hard to say thanks be to God after a reading like that. Saying no was the first temptation. The second temptation was to preach on only the first part of the chapter, the recovered orphan, the foundling bride. I thought we could linger here, play out those Ruth overtones of God spreading his garments over a vulnerable woman. We would end our reading at verse 14. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor that I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. This temptation dangled in front of me to do what we often do in church, completely skip over the ugly parts, do our best to keep people from squirming in the pews or sweating in the pulpit. I thought I had conquered all temptation once I settled on reading all of those verses that we read today. But soon I found myself ensnared in a third. You see, the more time I spent in this text, the more I wanted to somehow make the unpalatable palatable. I kept looking for help in commentaries, ways to excuse the imagery. How could I make sure that you and I did not leave the chapel this morning thinking of God as destructive and abusive? How could I make sure that we did not have these lingering images of Jerusalem stripped, bare, stoned, and pierced with swords? Maybe I thought it would help if we thought of Ezekiel's audience, that those hearing him would mostly have been men who would have found it abhorrent to be compared to a woman, let alone this whoring woman. Or could it help if we spoke of Ezekiel's context? those living in the blank trauma after exile, their life of vacant stares. Could we see that these were people who needed to be shocked into attention? I grasped at ways to turn the passage on its head to find a way to make it easier to swallow. I wondered, would you feel more comfortable if I apologized? Would it make it better to say that God is not human, that his jealousy is the only jealousy that makes sense, and that this passage does not give humans permission to meet infidelity with violence? Maybe all those attempts and caveats do help a little, and they're important to say. But focusing only on this means that we still end up skipping over the text that old temptation. There's a precedence for this. In the history of its existence, this chapter has often been banned from public reading. You might wish that we did that today. So like much of the tradition, we do not find ourselves at home here, and rightly so. 
Ezekiel does not spend time crafting these brutal images so that we can explain them away, defame them, smooth them over. Things started off so well. We first hear a story of God taking an abandoned orphan, caring for her, making her his, and lavishing her with his name, his honor, his gifts. In this chapter, Ezekiel takes on the metaphor of Hosea, the faithful God as husband and his unfaithful people as wife. And then Ezekiel turns the tap to full blast, scalding his hearers both then and now. For Jerusalem has not just been unfaithful, Ezekiel tells us she has prostituted herself a lot. He does not play a subtle game. Though translations echo our attempts to make the text less offensive, we are told Jerusalem builds a platform on every street corner and spreads her legs to every passerby. Ezekiel piles up such images. Jerusalem fashions idols for herself and fornicates with what she has made. She does not get paid for her sexual favors. She bribes others to sleep with her. And she uses the gifts that God gave her for these bribes. She sacrifices her own children. Verses 20 and 21 accuse, You took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to your idols to be devoured. As if your whorings were not enough, you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering to your idols. With this vivid and violent language, Ezekiel blurs lines between allegory and actuality. For we know that God's people were surrounded by religions that included child sacrifice, and systematic prostitution of its female worshipers. Altars became beds of fornication. The implication of idolatry here is not just a metaphor then, for to serve these other gods meant that Israel followed their practices of prostitution and child sacrifice. This meant perverting the blessings that God had promised to his people Israel that her descendants would be numerous, and that she would be a light to the nations. The locus of blessing and offspring and fertility became twisted. In her idolatry, prostitution, and sacrifice of her children, in following those around her instead of her God, Israel smothered her light and her blessings. And all of this because she forgot her God, This chapter is the reminder needed by a people so accustomed to their infidelity that they no longer notice it. With his words, Ezekiel puts his hands on Jerusalem's shoulders and shakes hard. Wake up! Thus, verse 22 accuses, In all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, flailing about in your blood. The old sin, the basic sin that Israel is so often accused of, you forgot, you did not remember. 
Israel does not just forget what has happened, but who God is. I was the one who brought you out of slavery, God cries. I was the one who taught you how to walk. So here God says, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring blood upon you in wrath and jealousy. We heard in our reading what that looks like. Nakedness, stones, swords. Israel bruised and bloody and broken. It's not easy to hear, and it's not easy to excuse away. We won't fall into that temptation. It's still a hard text to get through, but it's not finished. At the end of the chapter, God binds himself to Israel once more, promising an everlasting covenant. He knows Israel is not going to pull her weight. She will be sucked into idolatry again and again. She will forget again and again. She will fall into that amnesia of infidelity. But this is not a covenant of equals. It's not a marriage of humans. This is a covenant between the true God and his people. So God makes a promise to himself to bind himself to Israel, to remain faithful in her infidelity. And he follows through on it to the point of nakedness and swords, his own body bruised and bloody and broken. This is the cost of unfaithfulness. And God pays it. He asks Israel and us to remember who he is. He is the God who chose his people when they were lost and alone, naked and vulnerable. He is the God who himself is born as a child, naked and vulnerable. He is the God who stays faithful in the face of temptation, and the God who is stripped and pierced so that we might be his bride. So thanks be to that God and for his blood, blood that continues to cover all our everyday infidelities. Amen.